we're reading chapter 1 of John. I'm going to read verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Minister here, and it's a great privilege to be looking at this wonderful passage from the Bible. Let's pray, and then we'll get on with it. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you're a God who has spoken so that we might know you. Help us, we pray, to do that now. Amen. How do you know God exists? How do you know if God actually exists at all? It is perhaps the most fundamental question of all, but how do you answer it? I guess some of us here tonight will be uh, trying to work out that question ourselves. Perhaps you've come along because a friend's getting baptized or reaffirming, and you're not sure. They seem very sure about God. They're willing to, to publicly declare their faith, but you're not sure. How can you know? Others of us, well, we've got friends who don't share our belief, and we, we struggle to explain to them why it is that we do believe in the God of the Bible. And we struggle to explain why they should believe too. Why should you believe that God exists? Uh, we could talk about the existence of the universe. I mean, things don't just appear. Things tend to have a cause. Uh, we could talk about the way that all humans seem to need to worship something seems to run across all cultures. 
what do you go for? See, it actually matters that you have an answer to this, that you, you know how you would decide whether there is a God. If you're not yet a Christian, you want to make sure that you assess this biggest question of all rightly. That you don't just deal with uh, stuff from the internet and um, ideas you grew up with. But what does Christianity actually say about God? Am I, am I arguing with, the, with what Christianity actually says or just dealing with straw men all the time? You want to know what is the strongest argument for the existence of God. If you are a Christian, it is not enough that you believe in Jesus. It's not enough that you believe in God. You also need to know why you believe. Because otherwise, you will always be plagued with doubts and confusion because we, if, not news to you, we live in a culture where, by and large, people do not share your belief. And so unless you're clear not only what you believe but why, you'll always be blown around and uncertain and full of doubt. Of course, as soon as you address that question of, is there a God, another question leaps to the front of your mind. And that's where, if there is a God, what is he, she, it like? What is God like? And there's a huge amount of confusion there too. Even if we say, okay, we're talking about Christianity now, there's a massive amount of confusion out there about what God is like. Uh, um, to take two fairly uh, recent things from the news. So Jordan Peterson, the Canadian psychologist, who's written a lot about Christianity. I'm not sure he would call himself a Christian, but if you, if you read his writings and listen to him interviewed, he'd basically say Christianity, God is, God is basically about us taking responsibility for ourselves, about learning morality, right and wrong, about becoming disciplined so that we will live well in the world. God is about morality, really, is, is what he would say. But then you get the opposite message if you watch the royal wedding from, from the bishop who preached there. God is love. Is, you know, there's, there's no moral, no sort of moral injunction, no holiness. It's just wherever there is love, there's God. That's it. Which is right. How can we know the answer? How can you know if there is a God and how can you know what God is like? According to the verses we've just had read, which are one of the richest, deepest bits of literature ever penned by a human. The answer to both those questions, how can we know if there is a God and how can we know what God is like? The answer to both those questions is found in the historical man, Jesus Christ, in his life, his death and his resurrection. Now, we're spending the next uh, couple of months in John's gospel. And John was uh, Jesus' closest friend during his life on earth. And he writes in about 90 to 95 AD, uh, towards the end of his life. And this uh, introductory section we read is really his overture. It introduces all the themes that he's going to unwrap later on for us. And I've just got three points really for us. Uh, Jesus is God's word, Jesus is God's welcome, and Jesus is God's revelation. Let's, uh, let's work through these verses. Firstly, Jesus is God's word, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The other gospels, that is just the, the word for accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. The others reach back to the birth of Jesus, but John goes back a whole load further to the birth of the world itself. And he introduces us to Jesus in a unique way. Now, you notice that Jesus he's talking about from verse 17, as he finally reveals the name through Jesus Christ. That's who he's been writing about. But he introduces him in this first verse as the word. 
the word of God. Now, why on earth does he do that? He's drawing, actually, on the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. And right at the beginning, the words he echoes in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis, right at the start, portrays the the creative power of God's word. The creative power of God's word. The drumbeat of the, of the account of creation in Genesis is, and God said, let there be light. Let there be plants. Let there be animals. Let there be humans. And it was so. God speaks, it happens. The creative power of God's word. Jump forward to the next great stage in the Bible as God uh, creates a people and gathers and rescues a people, the Israelites, as he brings them out of Egypt and as he takes them to Mount Sinai and forms the nation of Israel. He doesn't reveal himself to them with a visible image, but with an audible word. We read um, just a few weeks ago as we were looking through Deuteronomy, these words in Deuteronomy 4.12, as they look back on, on that event at Mount Sinai. The Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the voice, the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. When you read on in the Old Testament, the Psalms and the Proverbs, uh, the Psalms and the Prophets tend to talk about God's word in, in almost personal ways, to be honest. So in 1 Samuel 3 and verse 21, we read, The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And, or more literally, for, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. That's extraordinary. Where God's word is heard, you can say God was there. His word is described in almost personal terms. God reveals himself and relates to us by speaking. But here, in John 1... The word isn't described in personal terms. The word is described as a person. And we read in verses 1 to 2 that this word was both God and with God, which is a brilliant way of saying that the word is like God the Father, fully divine, just like the God we read about in the Old Testament. Fully God, but not exactly the same as God the Father, as if it's just another name for God the Father or another way in which God the Father presents himself to us. The word is a person who relates to the Father and yet is fully God. And that matches what we know about words. Our words are not the same as us, but they are incredibly closely related to us. My wife is not her words. But if uh, I'm watching something incredibly important on the television, like uh, Denmark-Peru in the World Cup, crucial match, shan't be missing that one, uh, watching something on television and uh, she speaks to me and I ignore her and she comments on that. It doesn't play well if I say, I wasn't ignoring you, my darling. I was only ignoring your words. Should I do that, she will speak more words, which I will find harder to ignore, I suspect. You see, you can't divorce a person from their words. We get that. They're not the same as you, but they are closely related to you. Our words reveal who we are. We reveal ourselves by speaking. Our words don't just say stuff. They say stuff about us. They are our words. Jesus is the word. The metaphor changes a little bit in verses 4 to 5. He's also the light. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
The word has light, and this life is, light is related to life. He brings life. John is saying that life comes from this creative word of God. And though there is darkness, that is, there, though there is opposition to God's light, to God's word, the opposition won't win. God's light will continue to shine. Verse 6, uh, and suddenly the, the scene shifts from eternity to history, and we're introduced to a, to a man called John the Baptist. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The writer introduces a historical figure because the light, the word, is coming into the world at a particular time and place in history. We're not in the realm of myth or philosophy. We're in the realm of history at this point, of fact. Now, the basic point here is very simple. Jesus is God's word. What does that mean for us? Well, it helps actually before we think too much to, to step back and think what else could the writer have said? One writer helpfully points out, well, there are a number of alternatives. I mean, he could have said Jesus is the deed of God. Why not? You know, the deed or the force. Because Jesus is, you know, God in action in the world after all. In the beginning was the deed and the deed was with God and the deed was God or the force was with God and the force was God. Well, for all that words can be misinterpreted, deeds are much, much harder to understand. You can read anything you want, really, onto people's actions. We require words to explain deeds. Without words, deeds are open to misunderstanding. In fact, early in Jesus' ministry, he, he does lots of deeds. He heals people. He raises people from the dead. And, and in the first half of his ministry, he always tells them, don't tell anybody. You think, That's a bit odd. But it's because he knows they'll just, they don't understand the deeds. They need him to teach them, to explain what he's come to do, which is really to die for sins. So deeds wouldn't actually help us understand God. Words are much clearer. Well, I suppose he could have said uh, the feeling. In the beginning was the feeling. You know, God could have given us a, a, a religious feeling, an intuition, uh, a sentiment inside that enables us to know he is real on a sort of emotional level. The problem with feelings, though, is they're uncertain and they, and they pass. They come and they go. You can read a letter from a loved one, or you can remember words someone has spoken to you a long time ago, but you can't, you can't recall a feeling in the same way. They, they're not concrete. They don't, they're just sort of ephemeral. They go. And they can mean so many different things. Or why not the thought? In the beginning was the thought. Why doesn't he write that? Well, because thoughts are internal. My thoughts stay here. The point of the word is, it's communicative. This is God revealing himself to us. This is God coming down to be known by you, to be heard by you, to be received by you. Jesus is God's word, tells us that God has expressed himself in an authoritative way. If you want to discover the truth about God, you listen to Jesus. It's the first thing we learn here. Jesus is God's word. Uh, secondly, Jesus is God's welcome. Verses 9 to 13. Now, it is fair to say that humans, we have a rather complicated relationship with God. It, you could say it's we can't live with him and we can't live without him. 
Part of what it means to be human is to have a longing for worship. What the French philosopher Pascal said, described as the God-shaped hole at the center of our being. You know, every culture is worshipped. And even the cultures that have declared forcefully there is no God and tried to stamp out religion, well, they all end up treating an idea, a person, or a party in transcendental, godlike ways. We just every culture seems to have a need to worship. But, like Adam and Eve, when the real God does come down to us, so often our instinct is to run and to hide. Verse 10. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. We say that we want to connect with our spiritual side, to, to honestly seek out the truth about God. But then so often what happens is we, we then hear what God actually says. We read what he actually does. And we, how can you believe in a God like that? That's appalling. I can never, never follow a God like that. It's so awful. And so it's no surprise that when God did take the step of entering into his creation, what did we do? Well, when we found he wouldn't serve our agendas. He wasn't there to, to fit into the mold of our ideas of what God should be like. That he wouldn't just provide us with our own selfish desires. When we found that, we rejected him and nailed him to a cross and killed him. And yet, verses 12 to 13 tell us that this is why he came. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. God came to us God became one of us so that we might join him and become like him. Now, celebrities, sports stars, uh, even politicians these days, they often reveal themselves by speaking to us. They tweet, uh, they post on Instagram, they appear on chat shows, they write autobiographies. Well, they ghostwrite autobiographies and, and we hear their words and it feels like we have a relationship with them. But the truth is, it's a one-way street. They decide what they want to reveal. And although we have this, uh, this appearance, the, the illusion of relationship as their latest revelation pings into our phone, as we chirp with the next bit of news from them, they don't listen to us. They don't want to know us. They don't want us to come and get to know them. They keep a barrier between us and them. I probably sound like a frustrated celebrity stalker at this point, but you know what I mean. It is a one-way street. It's not like that with God. God came down to us so that we might join him. And it's not just access he gives us. It's family membership. Verse 12, he gives us the right to become his children. That might be slightly offensive, actually, when we think about it. Because that implies, doesn't it, that we're not already children of God. Really? I thought we were all children of God. Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that he created us. Nobody else created you, so we're all God's children in that sense. But no, in the sense of we're not his family. No, in the sense of having the rights and the privileges of a dearly loved child. See, what is promised here is more than just being part of the universal brotherhood of mankind. It's more than just knowing about God. It's It's knowing God, not as the unapproachable God of fire and thunder, 
but as the intimate, loving God of the Lord's Prayer, who encourages us to bring our concerns to him as a father we can trust and know will provide. The end of John's gospel, when Jesus has fulfilled his mission by dying and rising again, he speaks some of the most extraordinary words in all the Bible. He says to Mary Magdalene, don't hold on to me. He says, I'm going to my father. And he's spoken a lot about that in John's gospel. He's always talking about his relationship with his father. But now it's different. He says, I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. See, the result, the achievement of Jesus' death and resurrection is that his relationship with God, that he has by right, is now yours as a gift. He offers that to each and every one of us. And we become children of God, it says, through believing in his name, verse 12. That is by acknowledging his death and resurrection for us. It's not because there's some power in our belief that if I believe it enough... God will make me his child. It's because belief in Jesus is to rely on what Jesus has done. As we heard earlier, uh, a number of the testimonies point out, I thought I could achieve acceptance by God with my own works. And I came to realize, actually, no, it's Jesus has done it all for me. That's why they were so happy. They found Jesus has done everything, everything necessary for their sins to be forgiven and their place in God's family to be one. That's why baptism is such a great picture of this. It's, it's not a right we perform, it's done to us. You can have a bath on your own. It's always better to have a bath on your own, to be perfectly honest, but you can't get baptized on your own. You can't baptize yourself. It's done to you. A wonderful picture that we come filthy and dead, and Jesus washes us and brings us up to new life with him. It's a fabulous thing that he does. Jesus is God's welcome. And that welcome is an offer to every one of us tonight. Thirdly, Jesus is God's revelation. Verse 14 really states the point here, and then he expands on it a bit in 15 to to 18. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, verse 15, he goes on to say that the reason that John the Baptist said Jesus is greater than me and was before me, even though John was older, is because Jesus is eternal God. Verse 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He is the word of God. He is God. Verse 16 to 17, then pick up on the the declaration that Jesus reveals God's grace and truth from verse 14. Verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then verse 18 returns to the theme of Jesus the Son, who reveals God's glory. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side or is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Let's come back to verse 14. Literally, verse 14, when it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling, it's saying God became a frail human being and pitched his tent amongst us, which is an odd image. It reaches back to the Old Testament and the experience of the Israelites in the desert. Having gathered the Israelites to be his people, that's a picture of what God would do in gathering all the nations. 
God came and he told them to build a special tent. And he said, symbolically, I will dwell in the tent. I'll be with you. I'll be there to bless you and relate to you. And my glory will, will dwell in the tent. And it was this sort of overwhelming presence of God. When his glory descended on the tent, no one could bear to even be there. God's glory is, if you like, the visible manifestation of God's being. It's the visible manifestation of God's being. Now, God's glory relates to God, sort of like the sunshine relates to the sun. Uh, So science can tell you facts about the sun, uh, amazing facts about the sun when you think about it. I mean, it's big. We all get it's big. Do you know how much of the the solar system the sun constitutes? 99.86% of all the mass in the solar system is contained in the sun, which is made up of the two lightest elements of all, hydrogen and helium. It's 330,000 times the size of Earth. It was hot today. It's 27 million degrees in the core of the sun. I'm pretty sure it's Fahrenheit, but once you get to that, it doesn't really matter, does it? 27 million of something, it's hot. It's big enough that although it converts 4 million tons of matter into energy every second it won't run out of resources properly for another five or so billion years. In fact, the earth receives uh, energy from the sun, so much energy from the sun, in one hour, the earth receives enough energy from the sun that it's, it matches the, all the consumption of human energy on this planet for an entire year. It's an extraordinary thing, the sun. And you can learn amazing facts about it on Wikipedia, um, <laughs> as I did earlier. Uh, But you learn something very, and I know that there'll be imperial students queuing up to tell me where I was wrong afterwards. Um, Rewrite Wikipedia, don't talk to me. uh, uh, But you learn something very, very different if you walk outside and you just stand in the sunshine. Something you can never know just from studying about the sun. As you bask in the sunshine, sunshine is to the sun what God's glory is to God. And what they're saying when they say that no one has ever seen God, but that we've beheld his glory in Jesus, John is telling us that when people on earth, in around AD 30, met this man Jesus, it was as if they were basking in the sunshine of God's glory. All of God's radiant goodness and might and perfection was squeezed into Jesus' human body. We've seen the glory of God if we've seen Jesus, John says. Scarcely believable. Not that Jesus was a kind of half man, half God, weird thing. No, he was fully human. Looked like a man. Got tired when he walked too far. He bled when people whipped him. But he was also fully God. God revealed in human flesh. And amazingly, amazingly, John says in John 1.14... That when we saw his glory, we found that he was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's what those six who stood up here this evening have discovered. That's why they're here. They discovered Jesus is the truth about God. And so, in one sense, they had no choice. They have to bow their knee. Here is God. What else can I do? Here is God's truth. I must follow him. They also found out that he is full of grace, undeserved kindness. Now, it's not that the grace balances out the truth, that there is this 
mighty, awesome, hard-edged God, but thankfully he's also got some grace sort of softening his edges. Now, the wonderful thing is when they came to give up their own ideas about God, and when they came to Jesus Christ and discovered the truth about God revealed in Jesus, the truth is that he is full of grace, full of grace. It's central to who he is. And we know that because the central thing he came to do, as we'll see later on in John, was not to reign on a throne, was not to teach the truth even, but was to die on a cross so that sinners who do not deserve anything but being cut off from God for eternity might instead join him as his children in paradise. Full of grace. Full of grace. As we close, let's just think uh, briefly two things that it says, really. What does this say about God, and what does this say about us? I asked earlier, what would it take to prove to you that God existed? If I told you I can do whatever it takes to prove to you God existed, what would you ask me to do for you? Give a rational proof that finally shows philosophically a watertight argument that no one can gainsay that shows that God must exist. Rational proof? What about a mystical experience that draws you up into the divine and that enables your soul to connect and you just cannot deny that there must be a God? Or a miraculous healing performed right here at the front of church? There are all sorts of reasons people do believe in God. But the ultimate proof for the existence of God, the, the one that stands and confronts all of us, is the historical evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, in, in entering history, in ripping open the fabric of reality, and entering in history as a man, God has moved the debate about his existence from one of personal intuition or philosophical argument into one of historical fact. Jesus is God's claim that he exists. People often say to me, if God exists, why doesn't he show himself and prove it? He has. He has for all time in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the proof. Look to Jesus. Weigh up the evidence for his life, death, and resurrection. When verse 18 says that no one has ever seen God, it doesn't mean that no one has ever known anything about God. The contrast is with the last phrase of verse 18, uh, that Jesus, the word, the son, has made him known, which is a word that means fully reveal something. The contrast is with sneaking in to look at presents under the tree. You know, you can shake them, you can weigh them even if you're slightly nerdy. You can prod them, you can squeeze them, you can peek between the gaps in the wrapping paper. You can work out an awful lot from looking at presents under a Christmas tree, especially the year my parents got me a bicycle. It's kind of hard to, hard to, to hide that one. But, um, but it's not until things are opened on Christmas Day that you really know what's there, that things are fully revealed. Jesus is God's Christmas Day. For all the things people have worked out about God, Jesus reveals God fully. Lots of people have grasped all sorts of true things about God. Great philosophers, scientists, artists, thinkers, authors, lots of people have grasped lots of things. It's as if, though, they're in a windowless shed. 
examining sunbeams that have streaked through gaps in the slats, and, and, and trying to work out uh, what the sun was like from looking at the sunbeams. You can work out all sorts of things, but my goodness, it's, you're never going to get anything close to the reality of when you step out of the shed and behold the glory of the sun. Jesus is the sun, finally and fully revealed to us. God has revealed himself in concrete, intelligible, historical terms so that you could know him with certainty. And if you are open-minded, this is a wonderful opportunity. It means you can study God. He has submitted himself. How, what a wonderful condescension. He has submitted himself to our study. But it is a massive challenge if you're wedded to certain ideas about God. For God has not come to fit in with our ideas about him, but to reveal the truth. Jesus tells us wonderful things about God. But the fact that God has come in Jesus also tells us a wonderful thing about us, a scarcely believable thing. It tells you that you and I were made for relationship with God. You see, God, when he came to ultimately reveal himself, we can tell lots about God from creation, but ultimately when God came to us, he didn't come as a rock or a fire or a lion. He came as a human being. And that tells you that you, as a human being, were made ultimately for relationship with God. And you will never know fulfillment. You will never know what you were truly made for until you know that relationship. And it doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years. That same thing is true. You were made to know God. That's why he came as a man. Invest in that relationship. Rejoice that in Jesus Christ, the Jesus that we sometimes get so blasé about at church because we sing to him every week, we read about him in the Bible, and we forget here is God revealing himself to you. Here is God wanting to know you and forgive you and love you and welcome you. Rejoice in that privilege. Revel in it. Know him more and more. There is no greater joy, no greater privilege, and no greater wonder than that great God should become a man so that you and I can become his children. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that for all the questions and the doubts and the confusion out there, in your kindness, you have revealed yourself. Help us, we pray, to look at Jesus Christ and to find the truth about you in him. Help us to be humble enough not to demand that you must fit our ideas of what you're like. But thank you that when we do humble ourselves, we find you have revealed yourself And that you are a God of grace and truth. Truth that we can know and grace that forgives and brings us to be your children. Thank you for this glorious truth. Amen.